can be seated. Well, good morning, church. My name is Tanner. I'm a uh, pastor candidate here at Antioch, and uh, we're getting ready to, to dismiss the kids and our servant volunteers, but I just, I just want to acknowledge that our text today uh, refers to the greatest in the kingdom as the servants. And so when we call of our children's volunteers servant volunteers, we're not just putting like a Christian label on a volunteer. We, we theologically mean that that servants who are serving in kids' ministry are doing the greater work. They're doing the greater work than you all listening to a sermon. Uh, They're giving our kids the gospel and laboring and sacrificing week in and week out. And so we just want to acknowledge that. That's what we're going to read today in our passage, that those who serve are the greatest in the kingdom. And so we want to send our volunteers out with that blessing and say to them, you are sent. Well, if, uh, if, if you're here this week, you know that we've, uh, you're here last week, you know that we've been in our series on Luke that we've entitled Upside Down. Uh, we've been going through Luke every spring since 2021. That's pretty amazing, right? Like we've been working through the gospel of Luke since 2021. At this point, it's tradition. So I don't know what we're going to do next spring, um, but we'll figure it out. Um, Last week, Todd helped us by looking at the narrative and events leading up to surrounding the Lord's Supper and helping us sort of understand what it is we do as we gather every week around this table and observe the broken bread and the passing of the cup week in and week out. If you remember last week, Todd mentioned two things that he was only going to cover in passing and not be able to kind of dive into. Uh, And so thankfully... We'll, we'll sort of dive into those themes a little more this morning. Do you remember what they were? Anyone? It's a long time ago, a week ago. So, so one was not exactly how he said it, but Jesus' foreknowledge of the events that are about to happen, his betrayal, arrest, his death, his crucifixion, and at the same time, his desire to worship God and celebrate the Passover meal with his friends. Like there's a, those two things are sort of intention in, this, in that moment. The second thing he mentioned was Jesus' precise knowledge regarding the hearts and limitations and weaknesses of his disciples. Yet, he is still prepared and committed to them to the very end as he looks toward the cross. So both of those things, those two things in tension, exemplifies this upside-down grace that God has for sinners. It doesn't make any sense. And so we're going to consider those themes, and specifically we're going to look at what Jesus has to say about greatness and his disciples' misunderstanding of greatness as he tries to prepare them for the world-shaking events that are about to unfold. So if you have your Bibles, open them together. We're going to be in Luke 22, verses 24 through 34. You can find today's passage on page 882 if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs. So I've titled my sermon this morning, The Greatest of All Time. And the main point, because I'm not super creative, is this, that only through Jesus can we know the true meaning of greatness. Only through Jesus can we know the true meaning of greatness. So by implication, that means that all other forms of greatness that aren't known in Jesus are false or counterfeit. It's not a contested issue. 
greatness has been once and for all defined and definitively established and won by Jesus Christ through his sacrificial death on the cross. He is the greatest of all time. And that's the sermon. It's essentially what, what we're going to learn today. But we're going to help, uh, to help us sort of unpack that. We'll look at these two points in the outline. That greatness is not up for debate. And that true greatness is dependent on the one who is truly great. So with that said, if you are physically able, I ask you to stand and honor for the reading of God's word. If you're unable or uncomfortable standing, we just ask that you take a posture of reverence in your heart. Again, today's passage, Luke 22, 24 through 34. Church, hear the word of the Lord. And a dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, the one who reclines at a table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you all, that he might sift you all like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times, deny three times that you know me. Church, the Lord has spoken to us. Let's respond together. Thanks be to God. So if you spent any time around sports or you know sports fans, you've likely encountered the acronym GOAT. It stands for the greatest of all time. And unsurprisingly, that title was, was first claimed by Muhammad Ali himself. He called himself the greatest of all time in the promotion and aftermath of his 1964 and 65 fights with Sonny Liston. Listen, if you've got some time on YouTube, go look up those Muhammad Ali promos around that fight. They are some of just the most entertaining speeches. He, is, he was so gifted at promoting a fight. It's unreal. He was, he was truly great. But today, figuring out who the greatest is probably one of the more contested issues or aggressive debates that could take place, especially on the internet. So who's the greatest of all time? Is it LeBron or Jordan? Montana or Brady? Ali or Tyson? Or maybe sports isn't your thing. Is it the Beatles or the Rolling Stones? Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Marvel, DC, Star Wars, Star Trek. As I've listed those out, you've likely had some strong opinions about maybe one or the other. But here's the point. We love competition. We crave comparison. We like knowing who is the best, who's not the best, where things stack up, where they don't stack up, how we stack up, how we compare to others. 
you don't believe me, consider the following. These are, these are songs from my own soul, okay? So these aren't like, I'm not, I wasn't listening on your conversations. These are, these are me. So consider these situations, right? Your coworker comes up to you, and they've just found out that they were on LinkedIn, and their salary is nowhere near compared to the industry average. In fact, it's significantly less. They're making significantly less money. And they tell you what their salary is. And guess what? It's more than yours. In fact, it would, that would make a really big difference in your life. So what do you do? What's your response? Like, good for you, brother. Like, yeah, go in peace, right? No, your response is like, I work just as hard. I don't, I deserve that. Am I not entitled to a fair wage? Forget the LinkedIn industry average. What about just in this workplace? Or maybe you're out to dinner with another couple and they're just, they're really excited about their next vacation. And it just so happens that it's the third trip they've taken this year you can't remember the last time you took a vacation. And some rest and relaxation would sound really good right now. How do you respond? Well, where's my vacation? Haven't I been working hard? Don't I deserve a trip? Or maybe your boss has a meeting for you and production in your division is down. And you guys got to really step it up. Because we gotta, we got to get some products out there. we gotta, we got to show some success. But not you, right? You've been working hard. You don't deserve the extra work. That's someone else's fault that you have to now make up for. And I can keep going. You probably have own, your own situations in your life that have probably stirred up a similar response. But whatever it is, all of these are essentially the same. Where do I stack up? How do I compare? Who's outdoing me? Am I getting what I deserve? Am I losing out? Am I coming out on top? Where do I stand? And that seems like exactly where the disciples are in this passage this morning. Last week, our sermon passage ended with Jesus looking at his disciples and telling them, one of you is the betrayer. And then they began questioning one another as to which one of them, who it could be, who would do this. Verse 24, a dispute also arose among them, connected with this sort of who's going to do it. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. But as we will see in our first point, true greatness is not up for debate. So what's the picture here? Finger pointing, arguing, positioning, appealing to merit and status. Well, it can't be me. I'm not the betrayer. I've been the most faithful. I was the first to follow Jesus. Well, just let us find out who it is. You know, the sons of thunder are going to call down fire from heaven. We're going to get them. Thaddeus, Bartholomew, you've been acting kind of squirrely lately. Just pick a name, guys. Is it Nathaniel's, Judas? What is it? Or it's not me. I'm ready to die for Jesus. Finger pointing, positioning, appealing to self, merit, and status, comparison. And I want to take note of this this morning that this argument 
about who is or is not the betrayer or who is and is not the greatest is in direct opposition to the gospel of grace that they received just a few verses earlier. Look at verse 19. This is my body, which is given for you all. This is the cup that is poured out for you all. It's the new covenant in the shedding of my blood. It's for you all. And all of the disciples seated around the table need the grace of Jesus. They all need the covenant of grace marked by his broken body and spilled blood. It's not earned by merit or status. And the same is true for us. We are all seated as finger pointing, argumentative, self promoters. We need grace. But no one is awarded grace on their own merit. No one is awarded grace according to their own greatness. Greatness is not up for debate because there's only one who is truly great. Look at verse 25. And he said to them, the kings and the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them call themselves benefactors. In other words, what are you arguing for? This conversation is not befitting for those who belong to the kingdom of God. Why do you argue about greatness? You sound like foolish people who think they can declare themselves great. Those who are in authority, they call themselves benefactors. They call themselves friends of the people. They love being called that by others. And their argument demonstrates not that Not only did they misunderstand the meaning of the Lord's Supper and of Jesus' sacrificial death on their behalf, but their argument also demonstrates that they have a gross misunderstanding regarding regarding the kind of kingdom that Jesus is establishing. They want or expect Jesus to build a kingdom like the other nations. But the kingdom of Jesus Christ is far greater and superior than the kingdoms of the earth who exercise authority over one another and call themselves friends of the people. That's what benefactors means. And here's the idea that Jesus is getting at. The rulers of the nations are only just pretending. They might appear to have the three Ps, power, position, possessions, but those are only borrowed goods. Those who claim for themselves and call themselves great are only deceiving themselves. Why? Why do we say this? Because these things, power, position, possessions, whatever it is, they only belong to the Lord Jesus Christ to do with what he wills. Romans eleven thirty six: for from him and through him and to him are all things. Consider these verses. We'll put on the screen. But power and position, just because we're looking at it. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings. He sets up kings. And Jesus answered Pilate, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Possessions. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? 
And here's the point. It's from Jude, from the book of Jude, verse 27, 21. To God alone, our Savior, Jesus Christ, belongs all glory, majesty, dominion, authority, before all time, now and forever. Amen. It's all His. And to conduct yourself, disciples, people who argue about greatness and positions, to conduct yourself as if that's not true, as if Jesus is not seated on his throne in majesty, as if he's not made you a child of a kingdom and friend of God through his sacrificial death. To live as if that's not true is foolish. And it's to get in silly dinner arguments about who's better than one another. It's to play a pretend game like the kings of the nations. And that is a very, very, very dangerous game to play. Consider this example from Acts. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes and took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately the angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. That is the cost of presuming greatness and not running to the Lord and not recognizing that all things are from the Lord. But the disciples of Jesus are not like the nations. Greatness is not up for debate. Verse 26, but it is not so with you. The way this is worded is, it's not a suggestion. It's not like you should be different. It's, no, we don't act like that way. We don't live that way. That is not our way. It is not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest. The leader is one who serves. For who is greater? The one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? That's what you would think. But I am among you as one who serves. So we get this backwards, don't we? Like Jesus is sort of phrasing the question in a way where we're like, of course it's the one who's reclining at table. It's upside down. But, Paul says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak to shame the strong. And so the imagery of the servant that Jesus uses in verse 26, and that he's going to quote directly in verse 37, we'll look at that next week, should draw our attention to Isaiah 53. In Luke's Gospel, Luke wants us to view the crucifixion through the lens, the interpretive lens of Isaiah 53. So in the next several sections that we're going to go through, we should have Isaiah 53 sort of in our mind. We'll look more at this next week. But here's the point. Whatever things or great things the kingdoms of the earth have done, world domination, Alexander the Great, the Emperor of Rome, the the great kingdoms of, of power and dominion, whatever great things that they've done, it cannot be said of them as the angel tells Mary in Luke 1.33, that Jesus' reign will be forever and that his kingdom will never end. No one else can have that claim. And how does Jesus win his kingdom? By becoming God's suffering servant on behalf of many. Isaiah 53.11 12 out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge shall the righteous one my servant make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities therefore i will divide him a portion with the many he shall divide the spoil with the strong 
because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Who but Jesus can say this? According to God, this is what greatness looks like. It's not the one reclining at the table, but the one who serves in the manner after the suffering servant who was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. That's the greatest. That's who's the greatest. This is what Jesus is sort of getting at beginning in verse 28. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So obviously this sort of suffering and serving and staying with Jesus in his trials are connected. He's recognizing that if you stayed with me in my trials, you're sort of you're walking in the same way as I am in my suffering. Okay. You need to see that connection. Surely the, the disciples are not in it for worldly greatness, right? If you're only following Jesus for what you can get out of it, you're, you're going to leave when you find out how much it cost you. But let's notice two things. One is that obviously it is possible to be a sincere follower of Jesus who withstands trials. Okay, he recognizes that. You stayed with me in my trials. While at the same time being distracted and compelled towards worldly greatness. That is, a, that is a reality, a possibility. That as we exist and live in this life, we can be sincere followers of Jesus who are wholeheartedly committed, but at the same time are distracted or often compelled and run towards worldly greatness. But two, in his grace, Jesus loves us and leads us back to himself and the assurance of his great promises. And we don't stay in that tension point. The goal of the Christian life is to experience less and less tension, desire, compelling towards worldly greatness. Less of that and more trusting and running to the feet of Jesus. In the words of C.S. Lewis from his book, That Hideous Strength, it's one of my favorite quotes of all time. So good. This is the courtesy of deep heaven. That when you mean well, he always takes you to have met better than you knew. It will not be enough for always. He is very jealous. He will have you for no one but himself in the end. But for tonight, it's enough. He knows their hearts. He knows their weaknesses. And he has grace in this moment, even as they're weak. It's not forever. It's not good enough for always. But for tonight, there's grace. And for tomorrow night, there will be grace. And for the night after that, there will be grace. But the goal is that we grow increasingly less tempted towards worldly greatness. And we become more compelled towards His grace. Jesus is promising His disciples the greatness that they really want. I've said it once, said it a hundred times, right? The greatness they really want is eating and drinking around His table. That's what, that is the end of our life for eternity. Eating and drinking around His table. Communion with the King. Real authority. Real power. Not borrowed. Not derivative. Real authority. Real power from Jesus to sit on thrones and judge the nations. But the greatness is not up for debate. It's not up for grabs. They can't go running after it. 
Look at Jesus' words in 29. It's a kingdom that's been assigned. Not like your school homework, right? Like, we'd really like for you to get this done. Not like that. It's been assigned. It's been established or granted or covenanted to them. It's been assigned to Christ to do with what He pleases. And He is pleased to assign it to His disciples who will be participants in the greatness of His kingdom, which has been won in the shedding of His blood, and will be won by them and their suffering as they follow after Him. Unless you think Jesus is only talking about those 12 guys sitting around the table, consider Paul's words in 1 Corinthians. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you so incompetent as to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? In other words, why do we insist on arguing over trivial matters of worldly greatness when there is only one who is truly great and he has assigned to his people a kingdom and a power and a rule? And so we don't compete with one another for positions of greatness. That's not the Christian life. Rather, we outdo one another by showing honor and respect. No, you, you get the higher table. You get the higher status. No, not me. You take it. Well, not, I don't deserve it. You, you take it. We outdo one another in showing honor and respect. We don't appeal or throw ourselves at the feet or mercy of supposedly great men or women. We are servants of Christ and not pleasers of men. We don't trust in the greatness of worldly authority. There is only one who is great, and all other forms of greatness that are claimed for themselves are counterfeit. True greatness is not up for debate. But if Christ's disciples are going to follow after him, if we are going to follow after him, then we need to know something else. It's our second point. True greatness is dependent on the one who is truly great. Verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you all, it's plural, you all, that he might sift you all like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So two things we need to look at. Notice that Satan demands. He thinks that he has the right to demand of God whatever he wants. He thinks that he is great himself. That he is entitled to whoever or whatever he can get his hands on. After all, he's he's called the prince of the power of the air, the god of this world. But remember the first point. It's only borrowed. It's only borrowed power. It's only counterfeit greatness. Satan thinks he can demand the disciples, but Jesus is the only true great one. And what he says goes. So that's the first one. Notice that Satan demands out of presumption, pride, but Jesus prays for Peter that his faith may not fail. So here's the picture. Satan can demand whatever he wants, but that does not mean he's going to get it. Jesus is fully in charge and in full authority. And as the beloved son of the father, his prayers are always answered. 
In other words, by the authority of Jesus, Satan is not permitted to sift the other disciples out like wheat. Yes, they're going to scatter, they're going to run away, but we can all agree that they're not going to suffer the intentional spiritual assault like Peter will. The other disciples are off limits. You can't touch them. But Jesus, in his wisdom, and for Peter's sake, grants Satan a temporary moment, moment, to test Peter. So this is complicated. Like, what do we do with this? We're not going to leave here today to have it all sorted out, but we're going to get some steps in in the right direction on how we might be able to think about this. But here's, here's the point I want to make. Because God reigns and rules over his creation in supreme majesty and glory, all rulers and principalities and powers are ultimately under his authority. Which means, as Martin Luther summarizes it, the devil is God's devil. Okay, wild stuff. What does that mean for this passage? It means, for the passage, it means that Satan cannot assault the other disciples. That he can't have Peter indefinitely. That, that the, the terms of his temptation or testing are, are set in stone. He's got a moment. That, he can't, uh, that P- ultimately Peter's faith will be strengthened. That ultimately the rest of the disciples will be strengthened. That Satan's demands will be ignored. And that Christ's prayers will be answered. So that's what it means for this passage. What does this mean for you and me? To those who belong to Christ. It means that when temptation and testing come our way. That it's restrained. And Satan doesn't have free reign. It's restrained testing and temptation. That Christ is interceding for us. That he has considered us worthy to endure such hardships on his behalf. He trusts us with it. What a, what a stewardship to be trusted with, with temptation and testing. That God trusts us with that. That he has promised to see us through and to strengthen us in the end. Here's what Peter will say later in his life. Hopefully minded of this moment, right? Be sober, mindful, watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered for a little while, a moment... The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's what it means for us. What about for those of you who are here and you're not in Christ? What what does this mean for you? No doubt you've suffered great things in your life. You've had hardships. You've had times of, of, of deep pain and suffering. But hear this, that whatever pain and suffering you did receive was restrained. It was restrained. It wasn't, it wasn't as hard as it could, be. it could have been. It wasn't as worse as it could have been. That, that it was held back. It was suffering that was tethered, on a leash, governed. And it's held back by God's love and wisdom. And the fact that you're here this morning or listening to a recording of this later is a testimony of God's grace in inviting you to not endure that alone, but to turn to Christ for rest and healing and reconciliation. Because there's coming a day when that pain and suffering will not be restrained anymore, whether in this life or in the next. 
And so before that day comes, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And so Peter is warned that his faith will falter. What should the proper response be to that warning? Well, whatever it is, it's not what he says next. Okay, verse 33. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. What is that? It's pride. It's it's more greatness. Appealing to himself. Right? He's appealing to his own greatness. True greatness is dependent on the Lord. The one who's truly great. So rather than appealing to his own greatness, look how strong and courageous I am, Lord. He should have asked for strength. He should have said, Jesus, thank you for praying for me. I don't want to falter. That's the last thing I want. I know I'm weak. I know know it's going to happen. I don't want to fall away. Will you pray for me right now? Will you pray that I'll have strength to endure tonight and tomorrow night or whatever else comes? Will you do that for me? That's the posture of a true disciple. That's the life we're called to live. Not, I'm so strong, I can do it. But Lord, I can't do it. Will you, will you please help me? And we all miss this too, don't we? We come face to face with temptation or the reality of our own sin, our own lust, anger, pride, greed, self-righteousness, lack of control. And what do we do? With clenched fist and a stiffened jaw, we promise we'll do better next time. We can do it on our own. I'll do it. I got this. This is a silly example. But like I said, I'm singing out my own songbook today. So, believe it or not, there are times around like sweet treats where I'm a little tempted. And I lose self-control. And I just go overboard. Anybody else there? Like, oh man, no? Okay, I'm glad I'm, glad I'm in good company, right? So what do I, what do, I do after, after my night of debauchery where I just eat the whole cheesecake, right? What's the, what's, the, what's the temptation after those nights? You beat yourself up, shame. Maybe, maybe there's a YouTube video that can really help me out. That's what I lack. I lack knowledge, right? Maybe, I can, maybe YouTube will help me. Maybe there's a podcast that will motivate me to do better. Maybe I need more intermittent fasting in my life. You know, just tomorrow, I'm not going to eat till dinner, and that'll really, you know, that's maybe a little shame tactic. But do you see what, you see what's happening? It's an appeal to my own greatness. I've got this. If I just knew a little bit more, rather than acknowledging my own creatureliness and limits of self-control, I appeal to my own ability. You don't have to do it with silly things like food and not eating right, right? But you could do it with whatever sins, whatever you're tempted to take self-pride in, wherever you're tempted to find your own greatness. What needs to happen in a moment, even with silly things like food, is to, is to go to the Lord in prayer. I know this sounds trite, but this is the type of childlike faith that we're supposed to have. Lord, you made me and you've given me all things for health and nutrition to steward and enjoy and honor you in my body, which I will have for eternity to worship you. But right now, I don't have self-control and I need help and I need you to help me. 
That's, that level of childlike faith and coming before the Lord and honoring that we can't do this is the kind of life we're supposed to live. Whatever sins, poor habits, frustrations, doubts you have, you are not great enough to overcome them. There is only one who is great, and your greatness is dependent on him. So lastly, last thing we'll look at, notice the upside-down grace of Jesus in verse 34. So you got Peter, he thinks he's bad to the bone, and he can't falter. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. That statement is absolutely true, right? We have the benefit of turning the page and knowing that that's what's going to happen. Peter will deny knowing Christ. But also, everything else that Jesus said before verse 34 is absolutely true. His body broken and blood spilled for him. His love for Peter and desire to share the Passover meal with him. His acknowledgement of Peter's loyalty and enduring trials. His commitment to pray for Peter and his promise that Peter's faith will not fail. Absolutely true. Friends, the grace of God displayed in our Lord Jesus Christ is far superior than your weakest and worst moments. This is the significance of what we remember every week. We come to the Lord's table. What do we, what do we say? That he broke this bread, poured out this cup on the night that he was betrayed. The reality of his grace in the midst of our weakness should sink in every week. Look at the great grace and power on display in Jesus' commitment to endure the cross in the face of betrayers and self-promoters and doubters and deniers. He is in authority. Peter, you can deny me all that you want, but that doesn't change the fact that I'm committed to you. That your faith will not fail. That you will be restored and that I'm going to suffer in your place. Friends, our weakest and worst moments cannot thwart the grace of God made known to us in the gospel. We'll see in the weeks to come the suffering and the events that Jesus is going to go through. And if you're a Christian, know this. We go through these events. You can't stop Jesus. You didn't stop Jesus. The suffering that we're going to see in the next few weeks is how he shows his love for you. That while you were still sinners, he died for us. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. If you're not a Christian, know this, that you cannot stop Jesus. That he is calling you to himself to turn from your sin and to turn to him. And you might not have it all figured out today. But if, he, if you feel that he is calling you to himself, whatever bit you do have, it's enough for today. You can turn to Christ and be reconciled to God. You are not great enough to justify yourself. And your sins aren't so great to stop him from justifying you in faith for his sacrificial death on your behalf. Your greatness is not dependent on you, 
or anything else. Your, your greatness is dependent on the Lord, the true and only great one. He is the greatest of all time. On the night that he was betrayed and doubted and people promoted themselves to get position in his kingdom, he took a loaf of bread. After blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. And in the same way, he took a cup of wine and after blessing it, passed it to his disciples and said, take and drink. This is the cup of the new covenant marked in the shedding of my blood. Whenever you eat this bread and you drink from this cup, you're proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns. Today at Antioch, we're announcing that Jesus is the greatest of all time. Our tradition here in Antioch is to come forward, form two lines, and to take off a piece of bread and to dip it in the juice. There will be gluten-free on my left, your right. If you are a baptized believer, we invite you to partake in this uh, celebration of Christ's death uh, and his resurrection until he comes. If you're not a baptized if you're a Christian but you've not yet been baptized, we invite you to, to take that next step and to pursue baptism and faith and obedience to our Lord. Um, if you're here and you're not a Christian, we invite you to take the Lord Jesus himself, who is your only hope for greatness and overcoming sin and suffering in this world. There'll be pastors in the back. I'll be in the back to, to pray with anyone who has need. We'd, we'd invite you if you have if you have needs, like that's what, that's what we're here for in the back to pray with you and to listen and to love you. And uh, if you have any needs that you would like us to, to pray and talk with you about, please, please don't hesitate. That's what, that's what we're here for. Uh, we're not too busy for you. We, this is what we're called to do, and we love serving in this way. In a few moments we'll, we'll pray. Um, like I said, if anyone has any prayer needs, please come see us in the back. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come before you humbled, broken, grateful. Grateful that we have not been left to figure this out on our own. Grateful that you have displayed grace and mercy through sending your son to suffer in our place. Father, we pray that you would convict us where we try to be great. And would you show us the better way, the true way of following after Christ, that we might be made like him in his weakness and in our weakness, and that we also might be like him in his obedience and share in his greatness. I pray that you'd make this real to us this morning. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.